0: Hi there, and welcome to Calm After the Storm, Survivorship and Other Stories with Amy Syed. This episode is brought to you by the Quantum Genius Program. Today we're going to talk to someone who has a harrowing story of survivorship and thriving there afterwards. We do want to start by sharing a content warning. Information shared on our podcast can be graphic in nature and we recommend that you review the details of our podcast before listening. We appreciate you tuning in and we hope that the story shared with you today is inspirational and helps you get through tough times that you may be facing. Welcome again to Calm After The Storm. Today is episode 10 of Calm After The Storm. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you to everyone listening and supporting the show so far. On this week's episode, I will be talking to Katie Kozlowski, the founder of Healing with Shakti Bomb and Fiercely Feminine. Katie is an inspiration. After working through her own personal trauma, Katie has dedicated herself to helping women overcome the abuse they've experienced. Katie, thank you so much for being on the show today.
1: Hi, thank you for having me. I feel so honored to be here.
0: I really, really appreciate you taking the time. So Katie, I'm going to kick it off by asking you to walk me a little bit through, you know, where you're from, where you grew up and what did that look like the first little bit of your life?
1: So, I was born in Connecticut. I grew up in a wonderful family, but the thing about it was that there was a lot of challenges around alcoholism, suicide. Before I was born, my grandfather had actually shot himself before I was even born, and my father was in college. And so it kind of set up this legacy of the alcoholism, um addiction. there was there was a lot of turmoil and stress. So when you were
0: like, I guess, when you were growing up, how was it like with your parents? Like, were your parents also going through the alcoholism? Were they also going through these challenges?
1: Well, yes and no. My parents were not alcoholics, right? But my grandfather obviously had shot himself. And so he was alcoholic. My grandmother of my father was. And then he had two brothers. Both of them suffered from alcoholism as well. And so, again, by the time I was like two or three... One of my uncles jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. So he had killed himself. And then what they did was they took the other brother in. So my parents were really desperately trying to save my other uncle. And so I grew up um, with my parents very much devoted to trying to save this, you know, save this person. So it wasn't like we talked about it, you know, like uh, we didn't discuss it openly. But the issue was that, you know, I was a little kid, but I was very, you know, I was very much in tune. And so I knew even as a child that things had happened. You know, I knew that my uncle had jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and that he his ashes were in our backyard. You know what? We never talked about it. I knew that there was something wrong with my other uncle, but I didn't really know what it was. And so that was going on on my father's side at the same time. Um, on the other side, my mother's mother, who lived down the street from us, she was my loving, sweet grandmother. And so she was sort of like my saving grace. That was where I went to escape. You know, that's where I went, where I felt safe. And then she unfortunately had a brain tumor. She went in for surgery. And when she went in for surgery, they botched her surgery. It was supposed to be a routine surgery. And she was supposed to come home that day. You know, they made a mistake and she ended up in a coma for five or six years. How old were
0: you when this happened, Katie?
1: I was five. I was about five when she went in. So by five years old, it was like, okay, you have on one side a grandfather who killed himself, a grandmother who's an alcoholic.
0: And you were aware of this. So I guess your parents had talked to you about it and you you knew that it had happened?
1: They talked about it, but they didn't talk about it. Do you know what I mean? It was like, I knew that it had happened, but no one ever actually spoke to me directly. It's like, I heard them talking about it. No one ever came to me and said, this is what this is. Obviously, they talked to me about my other grandmother because I was visiting her in the hospital and I knew like I was physically in the presence of her. So it had to be talked about. You know what I mean? But so it was confusing because there was a lot of surrounding trauma and stress, right? There was a lot of surrounding anxiety and just confusion and What essentially what it looked like was my parents were so absorbed in trying to take care of my uncle and trying to take care of my grandmother and deal with the pressure and the stress of how to deal with that. No one really took care of us. So we were just kind of like, you know, on our own. So I spent a lot of my time on my own, even like at five years old. I remember just taking off into the woods alone.
0: So how do you think this affected your view on your life?
1: The deal is that I was, um, as I am now, right, I'm very positive and bubbly and loving, and I was always of that nature. Even as a child, you know, I was connected with spirit in really profound ways. And so when I say, you know, I would wander off into the woods, that's where I would go. I have so many fond memories of sitting in trees, talking to fairies, um, talking to angels. I had a really strong connection with people who would cross over. So when somebody would die, you know, I would see their soul and I would talk to them. And I was very, very connected to God in really, really beautiful ways. Like I had a journal and I would write to God every day. And it was like he was my pen pal. I developed at a very young age this belief system that everything was going to be okay, and that everything was, you know, everything was positive. And if I just kept my heart open, everything would be all right. And um, and it was a good survival. Right. It was survival because it allowed Mm. me to get through. But the issue is that when I got older, There was all of this unresolved um, confusion around love, around health, around mental health, around self-esteem, self-worth. And it was a byproduct of the fact that, you know, I didn't really grow up in an environment that allowed me to fully understand what it was that I was feeling because I only had one setting and that was everything's going to be okay because it was like everywhere I looked, I didn't have anyone that I could really count on because my parents were falling apart because of their parents falling apart. Um, do you know what I mean? I didn't have any sense of support. And so I chose God, but then eventually I got angry with God because I was like, well, God, if you're so great, then why aren't you helping me because you're not even helping me.
0: So, so Katie, when did you first try drinking alcohol? Oh, gee. Um, I was not a big drinker
1: at first. You know, I was in high school and I would say it was like the pressures. Like I was very naive and innocent when you talk about alcohol, drugs, sex. I was not like I was not Mm -hmm. a rebel. I was very pure and peer pressure would like convince me to try things. And so I found a lot of times I would get in dangerous situations, not because I wanted to hurt myself or because I had no self-worth, but because I wanted to be liked and accepted. So I can't remember exactly like the first time I drank, but I have a couple specific memories of my grandfather who was living, who was also, or, you know, he was a functioning alcoholic, but he drank a lot. He loved daiquiris. And so I took this powdered daiquiri mix and I made a daiquiri, but I didn't know, like water goes in it. I didn't know, you know, I didn't know how you mix it. And I drank a shaker full of rum and I got so sick. And I remember people thinking, oh my God, she has this problem. And I was like, no, I'm just
0: naive. Yeah. Yeah. So this is your, your maternal grandfather, right? Your grandfather on your mom's side? Yes. My, my maternal grandfather. Yeah. So how old were you when that happened? Do you remember? Well, that I was a
1: senior in high school. I didn't know what I was doing. I just was doing it because everybody was doing it. And I just wanted to be accepted. You know, I did it for that reason. I
0: didn't do it because I was I I had an
1: addiction, but I grew up around it,
0: you know. So what's really interesting about what you're saying, and I'm just going to share this with you and with the listeners, is that years ago, I went to a retreat. And I remember one of the healers there was talking about addiction to alcohol being the same as an addiction to sugar, which in turn is the same as an addiction to wanting love, right? So you when you don't have the sugar in your life, you're missing the sugar in your life, which is love, then you turn to alcohol, right? To fill that gap. So what you're saying totally makes sense. Because if you were feeling like, you know, you had that missing piece, turning to alcohol is a very natural thing for someone to do, right? Especially when they don't really know in the beginning that they're doing it for that reason. Now, how do you also think that your upbringing affected the relationships in your life through high school and as you grew up?
1: Exactly what you're saying makes sense because I struggled for connection. I struggled for love. I struggled to fit in. I was always the one on the outside. Like I was the social butterfly and I, I wanted everybody to be happy. And I wanted to be friends with everybody because I didn't want anybody to be left out because I had been left out. And what happened was I just kept choosing the ones who would turn their back on me. So I kept being like the odd woman out. So they would have like friendship clicks, right? There was always room for four at the table, not five. And so I found that I was experiencing a lot of rejection, a lot of isolation, a lot of depression. I didn't feel like I had friends. My high school years were really, really dark for me because I was so hurt. I was hurting um, so deeply. But the problem was I kept saying to people, help me. I need help. And they go, oh, no, no, you're an A-plus student. You're in honors classes. You're the star of the musical. You're beautiful. You're fine. You're, there's nothing wrong with you. And I'm like, I am thinking about killing myself. There was a moment where I remember I had smashed a bottle and I had the bottle and I had it at my wrist and I was going to, I mean, I was going to do it. I didn't do it in the end, but here's the interesting, the fascinating thing about it is I thought, well, so where did I learn that? Where did I see that? I had seen a movie. um, It's called Heat. It's Al Pacino and um, De Niro. And in it, Al Pacino's daughter tries to kill herself to get the attention of her father, It took me many years later to realize that what I was desperately seeking was love. I was seeking love. Everyone just assumed I was fine. And I was like, no, I really need somebody to pay attention to me, please. Just anybody.
0: Can you talk to me a little bit about the relationships you started to get into, you know, when you first started dating? Do you remember any of them? Can you walk us through any of them?
1: When I was in high school, I didn't date. I had a bunch of unfortunate sexual assaults where um, I had, you know, the older boys would invite me to a party. And again, I'm naive. I think that they're like they want love. Right. And I'm like, oh, they like me. One guy, I was a freshman and he invited me to lunch. And instead of taking me to lunch, he took me to an abandoned house and trapped me in an attic and He didn't rape me, but he trapped me and I was really scared. And and it really set me up for, again, this confusion of like, I don't understand. This guy said he liked me and I opened my heart and I trusted him and I got in his car and this is what happens. I had a lot of experiences like that in high school. In college, same thing. I didn't date in college. I didn't have sex until I was like 22, until I moved to New York And then once I got to New York City, it was kind of like, okay, here I am. I'm in the big city. And even then, I had a series of relationships where they were older men often, mostly because I thought that they could they would help take care of me. They probably had more love to give or whatever. But I had the same experiences even in my 20s in New York City, where I just kept getting myself involved in these relationships where the men would basically like open up bring me in, get what they wanted and then leave me.
0: So what was the get what they wanted part though? Cause it sounds like you're kind of repeating the same behaviors and you're looking for the same kind of relationships. Can we just talk a minute about what those relationships look like from your perspective?
1: Yeah, so when I say get what they want, it was like they wanted what they wanted on their terms, right, so they wanted sex. They mm-hmm. wanted me to open up to them and give them love right? They wanted me to be fully present for them. And I would do it willingly with an open heart. I would jump right in and say, oh, sure. You know, I would never stop to think, is this the right person for me? Are they ready? Do they want a commitment? I just assumed that because they told me they wanted a commitment, that they wanted a commitment. I trusted them with an open, I never questioned anyone. And then I would find that once we would be sort of in the intimate relationship, right? And we would get to that place. My mistake was I mistook food, sex, attention for love, but it didn't.
0: So Katie just referred to a time where she felt not taken care of when she was growing up, growing up in a household with parents who were focusing on taking care of her uncle and grandma and not really taking care of her. Oftentimes, when people feel as though their parents are withholding love from them, they start to wonder what their self-worth would look like as they get older. Next, Katie told me the moment where she wondered if anyone would ever care if she were to die. The moment when she walked in front of a moving cab.
1: September 19th, 11 years ago was when this happened. And it was that this moment where I thought to myself and I meant this with every fiber of my being, I really honestly wonder if anyone would care if I wasn't here. Would anybody notice if I was dead? Would anyone would anyone notice or could I just disappear from this world like that? And no one would even notice. Because that's how worthless I felt was like, nobody cares about me and nobody would care if I died and I don't care. And in fact, I would much rather not be here anymore because this is too much for me. This is too painful. And that was the thought I had as I was walking down the street. And then I saw the cab coming. And when I saw the cab coming, I remember thinking, I'm sure he sees me, but if he doesn't, I don't care. And I crossed the street. I knew it was very possible that he would not see me. And I hoped
0: he wouldn't. Okay. So you got hit. I did. And what was the aftermath? Like, did you feel after you got hit that this is just my rock bottom moment? Or was it after that?
1: It was unfortunately not after that. What happened that night was I was miraculously unharmed. The car was going at least 35 miles an hour. I hit the hood of the car. I rolled in the street. I mean, I should have been dead. I should have been lying in the street dead. And instead I was standing on two feet. I was wearing stiletto knee high boots and a long black trench coat. And I was completely fine. No dirt, nothing. And I just remember I checked my elbows. I checked my face, literally feeling to go, am I still here? Because how can I be here? And walking away going, okay, God, I hear you. I'm sorry. I know I'm not living my life as if I matter. I'm not using my gifts to the fullest potential. I'm very sorry. Please don't ever hit me with a car again. And I walked home that night and I knew that I would never be the same. The thing that had started all that was I was dating this guy, right? And the guy had stood me up that night and I didn't dump him. I knew that I had changed, but I didn't dump him. And this was in September. My 30th birthday came two months later. And on my birthday, he didn't give me a gift. He didn't say happy birthday. He humiliated me in front of my family because he treated me like garbage. And my family were the ones who said to me, you don't deserve to be treated like this. You know, and I was like, you're right. And one of the members of my family who was the partner of my sister at the time said to me something like, I wonder if you don't need to go to like AA. She wasn't saying I was an alcoholic, but she was saying, you have no self-worth and I see it and I think you need to do something about it. And I felt like, you know what? That was the moment when I said no more. No more, because not only had I witnessed it, but my family witnessed it. And when my family witnessed it, I just felt like I cannot go
0: on like this because they've seen it. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the way in the story that you're telling me and, you know, the journey that I've seen a lot of people go through, often we're going through this journey and we're like, oh, this is so hard, but it's okay because I'm the only one who's being affected by it. Or it's okay because I'm the only one who knows it, right? And now you're saying your family noticed it too. So at this moment, although you were like, I need to change it, was it a change in you or was it just because you felt shame because your family had seen it?
1: No, it was a change in me because the thing was what I realized, and this is what I find when people come to me is like, what I didn't understand was like, I don't understand why this is happening to me because Mm -hmm. I am a good person. I'm a beautiful, loving, open-hearted person. I don't deserve this. And I want to find out why This keeps happening because I should not be getting hit by cars. I should not be being abused by men. This type of stuff shouldn't be happening to me. And I want to find out why it's happening and I want to change it. So the fact that my family saw, I wasn't ashamed of the fact that they knew. I was more just like, I just wanted to understand why it was happening.
0: Katie's story is unique because she's touched by alcoholism and suicide in a very personal way. I often wonder when people go through such trauma before the age of five, what their memories look like afterwards. And Katie's story is excellent in explaining what those formative years look like for her. Oftentimes people run through life dealing with the trauma that they have and not realizing that they have hit their rock bottom moment till much afterwards. Personally, it took me about a decade to realize I had a rock bottom moment. So for Katie to realize that moment and to talk about it so openly, it really speaks to her level of healing hereafter. So personally, for me, When I look at Katie's story and I compare it to what I went through, the journey of going through life pre my father passing away was quite normal in my mind's eye. Yes, we had the same struggles that a lot of immigrant parents do coming to a new country and building their life. But generally speaking, I was really blessed to have parents that did work very hard for us and protected us as we grew older. I feel strongly that after my father passed away and through my 20s, my experiences were similar to Katie's in the sense that I was involved in relationships with individuals who were quite abusive, and I was also looking for love in all the wrong places. I realized this, I think, more so when I was going through the terminal cancer part of my cancer journey and realized that. The love that I was looking in all the wrong places is really what was hindering me and what was somehow poisoning me at the time and making me feel physically and psychologically ill. Following that in terms of awakening, when you hit that moment, so for me, that moment was when I was told that I was terminal. The awakening happened thereafter, because you do start to realize in the isolation of your experience that there's only you and really you have all the power to change your situation. So after that, can you describe to me how you kind of started to come out of it and what you did next? Because I know you, you brought on a spiritual teacher and you started this journey of realization. Can you walk me through that a little bit?
1: Sure. So the first thing I did, I had a friend who was a healer and she did a very specific modality. It's a modality that I still practice. It's called rising star. And I went to her and I said, look, that thing that you told me that you do, that I was too, quote unquote, cheap to do before. So to go to her for the first session that day. She said to me, Now I want you to know you can clear anything, you can cut cords. And I had been working as a whiskey ambassador, which was part of this whole thing of me knowing that I needed to make a lot of changes because here I was selling alcohol when all my family had killed themselves because of alcohol. Like I knew that if I kept doing what I was doing, I was headed in that direction. I went to the healing that day and I set an intention I said, I want to cut the cords and I want to free myself from my job. And when I I got off the table, I had a message on my phone and it was HR and they called me to fire me during the session. I got off the table and I had been fired and I had been too scared to quit. And then I looked at my friend and I went like, holy smokes, this stuff is powerful. But so that was the beginning. And so I went I did that healing with her Mm -hmm. and it really was, it was like an instantaneous shift in me. And then that slowly began to progress. And then, um, She wanted me to meet the man who became my spiritual mentor and teacher. His name was Derek. And she Mm -hmm. wanted me to meet him. And I was very hesitant at first because I was like, you know what? I don't need a quote unquote guru. Like I'm not looking for somebody to save me and I'm not going to drink the cool. You know, I had all these fears around being sold something. And Mm -hmm. so I was very cautious But I did eventually go to see him. I saw him live do a workshop and I watched him work with people. And I'll never forget watching him do the work he was doing with people that were recovering from traumas, deep, deep, deep trauma, and watching him help them in the moment process the pain. And I was so moved and enamored with the process, his particular way of helping people That I did, I fell in love with, I mean, I fell in love with him, just the energy that he brought, the -hmm. methodology that he taught. What was the
0: methodology that he teaches?
1: It's essentially meeting people where they're at, um, holding compassion, love and acceptance. There's a specific way to identify a root cause of a trauma and bring it to the surface to cut it away and release mm-hmm. it and then replace it with something better. And watching him do that, he called it the sword in the brush. Um, I call it Shakti bomb, right? So I've adapted it and I've turned it into my own methodology, which is sort of like what he was teaching. Only I've added some, you know, some Katie Mm -hmm. flavor to it, but Mm -hmm. it's essentially that way of speaking to someone in such a loving way that you can open up the wounds and bring the pain forward without any shame, without any aggression. And I watched him do it. And I just said that whatever he's doing,
0: I want to learn that. And that was the beginning of the next chapter. So the next chapter is basically the last decade of Mm -hmm. work that you've been doing. Can you talk to us and like, especially the listeners about some of the things that you've done for yourself to heal and what's worked really well and what the benefits could be for them?
1: I'm a huge fan of introspective work, right? So I've done a lot of self-analysis. Around looking at the patterns and the stories and the behaviors. So Mm -hmm. one thing that I learned um, a long time ago was that it's not the talent, meaning it's not the person that's the problem, right? It's not um, who you are. That's the problem. It's the behavior, right? It's the sort of repetitive patterns. It's the actions. It's the way you're functioning that's actually causing you pain, but it's not actually
0: who you are. So the, the expression of your pain, basically, that's causing that, the yeah. cycle of pain, right?
1: Right, right. Yeah, so I did a lot of self-study around looking at myself and breaking down my patterns and breaking down my thoughts and breaking down my behaviors and looking at when I do this, right? When I feel this, I do this, right? Can
0: you give me an example? Like when I do this, what would that be?
1: Let's see. Like um, when I open myself up, right? And when I put myself out there and I open my heart and I present myself, which is a very healthy thing to do. Mm -hmm. Then after I do it, when I take a step back and I break myself down and I go like, i wait for the response and I don't get the response I want or I feel like I could have done better or whatever it is. Right. Then I go back and I beat myself up and I rip myself apart and I say, well, they didn't like me because I did this or maybe I should have done this right when I open my heart and share myself and then I unconsciously beat myself up for not doing a good enough job or make a decision on how well I did based on information that's not valid, I cause myself pain. Yeah, Do you know what I mean? And I mm-hmm. just... I take away the value of everything that I've done for myself. So that's just one example of sort of what it looks like for me.
0: And what did you do personally to to deal with that reaction you were having? Because that's pretty hard, right? Like if you're blaming yourself for every time something goes wrong, that's really it it can destroy you as a person. Oh, it's
1: incredibly destructive. So one of the things that I've had to train myself and I call it training because it's a practice, right? It's not like you said, it's not easy to sit with your feelings. Right. It's not easy to sit with your emotions or to look at your behavior. So one of the things that I had to teach myself and that I learned via going through the trainings with my teacher was he taught me how to sit still. Right. And so I had to learn how to when someone, quote unquote, triggers me like I don't really love the word trigger, but it is when someone mm-hmm. when someone activates a feeling in me that makes me want to run away or makes me want to fight or makes me want to rip myself apart. I taught myself how to sit still so that no matter what I'm feeling right I might be feeling rage I might be feeling panic I might be feeling humiliation I might be feeling shame like whatever it is that I'm feeling instead of taking myself out of the experience and saying you know what I'm just gonna I'm gonna go have a drink I'm gonna go shopping I'm gonna go eat I'm gonna go through Facebook I'm gonna go running I trained myself how to sit and be like no you sit And you feel this, you feel it because it's in your body, it's information, it's present in your being for a reason. And so that's the hardest lesson for me because I'm a mover, like I'm a go, go, go type lady. And it's easy to unconsciously perpetuate the struggle if you haven't trained yourself to be present with the feelings. So I think that that's the biggest thing that I've done for myself.
0: I think I spent my entire decade of 20 to 30 go, go, going until I couldn't go, go, go anymore, you know, right. I physically couldn't. So that right. really, really resonates with me. I want to go back to just for a second for listeners and for you and I to kind of chat about it. The word trigger, I don't use the word trigger either. Uh, the word trigger itself can trigger people, but I want to get your perspective on the word trigger and why you don't like using it.
1: When I think of trigger, I think of gun, right? Which means you're activating something that's releasing something painful, right? A gun, when you pull the trigger, a bullet comes flying out of there and it can kill you, right? So people use emotions as weapons. People activate people's feelings as weapons on purpose. Shame, fear. And I've seen coaches do it and I don't agree with it because I don't think it's right to use somebody's pain as a weapon. And I've had people do it to me with like anger, right? They've taken their anger and turned it on me and not just said, hey, listen, I see this and I want to talk about it or, you know, like we have an issue and we need to discuss it. But they came at me with their anger and they hit me with it so hard that they tried to destroy me with their anger. And I feel like... That's why I don't like it because I would never encourage someone to activate somebody's pain with the mindset of I'm going to cause you to hurt in order to get you to do something because it feels manipulative. And that's just me. I get the beautiful shifts in people so quickly because I don't do that and they feel safe. And when you feel safe, your nervous system is relaxed and your subconscious is like a beautiful open space. And all these people think that you have to pry it open. And I'm like, no, just actually speak to it sweetly and lovingly and watch the flowers bloom. It is not, you don't have to trigger people.
0: Katie spoke about when she realized that her expression of pain was perpetuating her cycle of pain. Now, Based on my own experience and that of those I've worked with over the past 20 years in CBT, I have come to realize that when you've experienced pain as a result of trauma, it becomes a lifestyle. So perpetuating your cycle of pain is really normalized. And that's really the only option you see in your life. So when you're in that cycle... Of pain and perpetuating the pain you're committing to acts of self-sabotage talking yourself out of positive situations and positive perspectives by telling yourself that this is your way of life and this is what you know so that becomes your safe zone in order for us to break this cycle we really have to start to address The moments of self-sabotage or address those moments where we do talk ourselves out of positive situations that are happening to us and realize that that's what we're really doing. And that realization is really the start of breaking this cycle. The other piece is addressing your subconscious mind, which is the mind that makes you feel safe, basically safe when you're making the same decisions you've always made with the same outcomes you've always had and retraining your brain to help you break the cycle by realizing that there is another way. I really want to talk now a little bit about like how you're doing today How's the thriving been going? What does that look like for you right now? And I want you to talk to me also about Fiercely Feminine and the Shakti bombs.
1: Sure. It's interesting because it's an ongoing process, right? It, it's like a flower, right? It continually blossoms and blooms. A couple of amazing things have happened in my life where I've gone from living in fear and living in anxiety and all of that to being fully immersed in life, in love and and learning how to like give and receive in an equal, equal way. To me, that's thriving, right? Because it's like If you have to withhold parts of yourself in order to be whatever it is you're looking for, then I don't feel like that's a fully embodied life. So
0: and and how long does it really last? Right. If you're going to be living that charade.
1: Right, exactly. So I've gone from, you know, really struggling to, I live in a home by the water. I was wanted to live by the water. I'm able to throw my paddleboard in and go out and to be in nature. So I've created this life where I get to be in an environment that suits me. For me, someone who struggled with romantic relationships, I have this amazing relationship with this beautiful man who's, I mean, I never thought that I would have something like this. And I'm like, this is proof that you can have this emotionally available, like wants to talk about feelings, wants to have conversations. And so I've built um, a life that feels thriving. And I've fallen in love with this process of everything that we're talking about, of guiding women um, through healing, through reclaiming power, through full embodiment of living in their bodies and Creating a life that feels good and healing the trauma and rebuilding the nervous system and all that. And that's what Shakti Bomb and Fiercely Feminine is about. So to me, it's like I've taken what I've always known to be true. And honestly, it's what I always wanted, even as a little girl. That's all I wanted was to be fully immersed in life. And I was just like, Hey, why isn't anybody listening to me? Like, why isn't any, what's going on here? What's yeah. all this trauma and drama, um, yeah. you know, and that's how I came to build this and why I built it because it was born out of my own, um, struggle,
0: but also the transformation. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. Now, in every episode, we ask people who are interviewed, Somebody they'd like to honor or somebody they'd like to dedicate the episode to. Do you have someone like that? And could you talk about that?
1: Oh, man, there's so many people that I'd love to honor. You know, it's fascinating, but my uncles are actually coming to mind. You know, I have these two uncles that killed themselves, and the younger one, his name was Evan, Evan Kozlowski, and he was only 21 or 22. And the reason why he jumped was because um, his girlfriend dumped him. And he was so heartbroken that he just jumped. And I speak of him because even when I was a little girl, there was part of me that was like, he was always in my ear saying like, I want you to take this lesson and bring it forward and teach people how to love themselves. Because if you're depending on other people to be the source of love and you lose it, then you lose your will to live. And that's what mm-hmm. happened to him. And yeah. there was a time in my life when I wanted to reject my family heritage and say, I am not them. And then I realized I've got the chills. i um, I am actually here to honor and liberate all the beautiful souls who just didn't know that and to teach others that, you know, what it really is about self-love in the end, because as long as you have that, you don't have to hurt yourself to get love from anybody else. And I that's what I was doing, you know, so I honor uh, my entire family, but but him in particular.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Katie. Um, I'm going to close up the episode. Thank you so much to everybody, to all the listeners for listening to Calm After the Storm, survivorship and other stories. And Katie, thank you so much for today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. So a key takeaway from my conversation with Katie today is reflecting upon our upbringing and realizing that What happened to us in our formative years growing up is not our fault. We are often raised by parents or parental figures that themselves have lived a journey and have their own trauma. And oftentimes they bring that trauma into their relationship with the children that they raise. So, In making sense of our childhood, we often blame ourselves and take responsibility for things that were not our fault. And for us to see those individuals as exactly that, which is individuals who have had their own journey and were flawed in their own journey, gives us the solace in knowing that we don't need to take that responsibility anymore or hold on to that anymore. So if there's one thing that I want all of you to take away with you today is to really take a moment to introspect and realize the delineation between your own existence and that of those who raised you. Thank you for listening to Calm After the Storm. The podcast is dedicated to telling stories about survivorship, healing, and thriving after trauma. Tune in next week to hear another incredible conversation. If you like this episode, support Calm After the Storm, Survivorship, and other stories by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Calm After the Storm is created by me, Amy Syed, and produced by Quill Incorporated. Special thanks to our guest today, Katie Kozlowski. Be sure to check out her initiatives, Healing with Shakti Bomb and Fiercely Feminine, at www.katiekozlowski.com.